introduce my dear friend and former council board member, Talmadge Boston. And uh, Talmadge is a partner at Shackelford Law Firm. He's also an author himself, a historian, a speaker, an interviewer. Talmadge, what do you not do? Who knows? But join me in welcoming Talmadge to the stage. Thank you so much. Well, good evening. I'm so glad you're here. I've done two programs with David earlier today, one at breakfast and one at lunch. And this book is, like all of David's books, as far as I'm concerned, magical. It is uh, a message that we all need to be not only reading about, but uh, doing. And that is how to build better relationships in a world that is increasingly difficult to live in, High suicide rates, loneliness, meanness, polarization, all the things that make us sad about the state of our society. And David's taking it upon himself to try to write a book that we can all learn from and, and, and do better in all those areas and hopefully inspire others to do better. Uh, David has a wonderful pattern of turning out a book every four years, uh, and this is the year. Uh, his book, The Social Animal, came out in 2011, The Road to Character, 2015, The Second Mountain, 2019, and now this one in 2023. So whenever you think of an election year, think the year before I'm going to get a David Brooks book, and uh, I'm going to be a better person because I got to read it. So David, we're glad you came to North Texas. He's, a, he's incredibly committed to North Texas. He's in the middle of crossing the country. He speaks all over the place, but he never misses North Texas. So David, we appreciate your commitment. I am a Dallas Cowboys fan, so that's something. Um, uh, <laughs> and I uh, became a Cowboys fan when I was nine, so this is a lifelong thing. Say Texas uh, Well, I was t Talmud has heard this story twice today, but we were together, uh, I think it was October 27, 2011, uh, which was the sixth game of the World Series, uh, and we were together for the Dallas Bar Association. We watched the game for the first three innings. I gave a speech for the middle three innings. And then we watched what was going to be the Texas Rangers World Series victory in 2011. And as you know, that strike never came. Um, so I congratulate you for inviting me here after the World Series was over. <laughs> so I couldn't ruin it for you. Uh, and it's good to be back here. The first time I was in Fort Worth, I was just reminiscing. I was invited by Bob Schieffer to come here. Uh, to go visit downtown here and then go to uh, TCU uh, and Bob Schieffer, one of the warmest, most wonderful guys uh, in our profession, uh, granted a low bar, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, just a wonderful guy. Uh, so I, uh, you probably have seen this movie, Fiddler on the Roof, some of you. And if you saw that movie, you know how warm and fuzzy and emotional Jewish families can be, uh, always singing and dancing together. And so I come from the other kind of Jewish family. Um, and the phrase in our culture was, uh, think Yiddish, act British. Uh, and so we were stiff upper lip. We were pretty unemotional. Uh, and when I was four, my teachers, um, apparently my nursery school teacher, told my parents, David doesn't really play with the other kids. He just watches them. 
which is a good for being a journalist. I tell journalism students, if you're at a football game and everybody else is doing the wave and you just sit there and you don't do the wave, uh, you have the right kind of aloof personality style to be a journalist because we don't really do anything. We just watch people do things. And so I was pretty much up in my head. And then when I was seven, uh, I read a book called Paddington the Bear and decided to become a writer. And I've been writing pretty much every day except maybe 200 in the 50 years since. Uh, and so writing was really at the core of my life. And in high school, I wanted to date a woman named Bernice. And she didn't want to date me. She wanted to date some other guy. And I remember thinking, what is she thinking? I write way better than that guy. Uh, and so that's where my values were. Uh, and then when I was 18, the admissions officers at Columbia Wesleyan and Brown decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> maybe we have a Chicago person here. Um, and um, I fit right in. It's super cerebral intellectual place, and I was super cerebral and intellectual. I had a double major at Chicago in history and celibacy while I was there. Um, uh, and we actually, um, my freshman roommate, we entered him in the Chicago Golden Gloves competition. Uh, and we did it the Chicago way. We didn't actually practice boxing. Uh, we read a lot of books about boxing. And his illustrious career lasted 29 seconds. Um, and his name was the Kosher Killer. That was our nickname for him. And didn't really work. Um, and so then I went into journalism. And I went into cerebral journalism. I became an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Um, I was a more conservative when I was hired. And my classic joke was uh, when I was hired as a conservative columnist for the New York Times, it was like being the chief rabbi at Mecca. Uh, not a lot of company there. Um, and then I got this great job at the NewsHour, uh, which for TV is cerebral version of TV. And so we have this wonderful audience, very thoughtful people. Um, we were talking about PBS. and. Um, our audience is very uh, great, but also a little seasoned. And so uh, if a 93-year-old lady comes up to the airport, I know what she's going to say. It's, I don't watch your program, but my mother loves it. Uh, and so um, uh, we're very big in the hospice community. Um, um, uh, and so that's been the life I was on. And, but it was not filled with a lot of emotional openness. And so Talmadge and I are big baseball fans, as I hope everybody here is in after the Rangers' victory. Um, and so there's a moment that symbolizes for me the, my mode of being in the world. And so I've been to thousands of games. I've never caught a foul ball. Uh, but I was in Baltimore, and I caught a bat. Batter lost control of the bat. It swung in the air, went into the stands, and landed on my feet. And as I can tell from your reaction, catching a bat is a thousand times better than catching a ball. <laughs> And so any normal human being is holding it up in the air and dancing and high-fiving and hugging everybody. I put the bat at my feet and just stared straight ahead. And so I had the emotional reaction of a turtle, basically. Uh, and so that was a certain way of being. Uh, and so I decided eventually that I should get better at this because uh, living in this sort of aloof way is a disconnection from others and a disconnection from the world. And one of my favorite writers, uh, Frederick Buechner, says that if you cut yourself off from the intimacy and the pain of living, you also cut yourself off from the sources of life itself, which are other people and which are divine sources. So I try to just be more emotional. I tr train myself to be more emotional the University of Chicago way. I wrote a book about emotion uh, <laughs> called The Social Animal. 
And then I wrote a book about character to try to give, improve my character called The Road to Character. And I learned writing that book that writing a book on character doesn't give you good character. <laughs> and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character. Uh, but buying a book on character does give you good character. <laughs> and so uh, I recommend that. Um, and so I became more emotional. And the sad part was that as I became more emotional, I became more moved by music. And I discovered my heart had been apparently Rip Van Winkling. And so it turned out I have the heart of a 14-year-old girl because the only music I like is whatever 14-year-olds are listening to at that moment. So every Taylor Swift breakup song, uh, deeply moving to me. I can't even remember high school, but I remember I, all her. And so it sort of worked. And I, um, I can prove it to you that, um, and I have to do a little name dropping. I've been interviewed by Oprah twice after 20, 2014 and 2019. And the second time she pulls me aside after the interview and she says, I've rarely seen somebody change so much before. You were so emotionally blocked before. And so that was a good day for me because she's Oprah, she should know, she's the expert. Uh, and so I sort of have been on the journey to be a little more open human being. And the sad part, is, as Talmadge referred to, is as I was becoming a little more human, American society was becoming a little less human. Uh, and so depression rates, suicide rates, 36% uh, of Americans report feeling lonely most of the time. The number of people who say they have no close personal friends is up by f four times over this century. Uh, the number of people who rate themselves at the bottom level of happiness has risen by 50%. 45% of teenagers say they're persistently depressed, uh, despondent, and hopeless. And so that's just a lot of social pain. Uh, and when you feel you're not seen, when you feel you don't have friends, you regard it as an injustice because it is. Uh, and so you want to lash out. And so periods of sadness tend to lead to periods of meanness as people become more distrustful and they lash out. And so I think a lot of the problems in our politics flow from problems in our relationships, that people are looking for somebody to recognize them somebody in national life to recognize them. And some of it is our fault in the media. And so in, in, uh, in my career as a journalist over the last 30 years or so, um, we started out, when I started out as a reporter in Chicago, we were a working class profession. And now we're a, an, not only a college educated profession, we're an elite college educated profession and if you swung an ax at the New York Times newsroom, uh, randomly you would hit eight people who used to edit the Harvard Crimson, which would be a good idea, by the way. Uh, and so uh, people feel invisible and unseen. And so there are a lot of reasons this social decay is happening. I think social media has played a role. Political partisanship, if, we're, if society's being ripped to shreds from the top, you're gonna have division at the bottom. World events, we've seen what has happened in the last month as the violence in the Middle East has led to rhetorical and sometimes physical violence on American campuses and American streets. But the one thing I think is underappreciated is what I would call the moral reason, that we just don't treat each other with consideration and respect as much as we used to. And partly it's not open-hearted, but partly because we just don't know how. And treating each other with respect is a skill it's how to be considerate in the complex circumstances of life, how to be a good listener, how to reveal vulnerability in an appropriate place, 
how to sit with someone who is grieving, how to ask for and offer forgiveness, how to sit with someone um, who, uh, or how to break up with someone without breaking their heart. These are just skills. And for somehow we don't teach these skills. And there's one social skill at the heart of every successful family, organization, community, society, and nation. And that's the ability to make others feel seen, to make them feel understood, heard, and respected. And so I'd ask you, how good are you at this skill? And I haven't met most of you, but I can tell you you're not as good as you think you are. There's a guy at the University of Texas Arlington who studies this and who finds out we accurately know each other uh, when we meet each other about 20% of the time. 80% of the time we have no clue what's going on in the other person's head. With friends and family it's 35% of the time. Uh, and so some people are really good at it, 55%, some are terrible at it, 0%, and think they're good. And so in any group of people there are diminishers and there are illuminators. The diminishers make you feel unseen. They're just not curious about you. And I sometimes go to a party and I leave it and I think, you know, this whole time, nobody asked me a single question. And I've come to find that about 30% of the people you meet are question askers. They're just curious about you. But 70%, they're perfectly nice people. They're just not question askers. Uh, and so they're diminishers. Illuminators, on the other hand, make you feel lit up. They're curious about you and they just beam a, a sense that I really get you. And so there was a writer who lived about 100 years ago named Ian Foster. And Foster said, his biographer said of Foster, to speak to him was to be seduced by an inverse charisma, a sense of being listened to with such intensity that you had to be your most honest, sharpest, and best self. Imagine how good it would be to be that guy, to be such a good listener that people look right up in front of you. There's a woman named Jenny Jerome who would go on to become Winston Churchill's mom. And in the, early, in the late 19th century, before she had Churchill, um, she was seated at a dinner in London next to William Gladstone, the Prime Minister of England. And she left that dinner thinking that Gladstone was the most clever person in England. And then a couple weeks later, she's seated next to Gladstone's great rival, Benjamin Disraeli. And she leaves that dinner thinking that she's the most clever person in England. <laughs> And so it's good to be glad, Gladstone, it's better to be Disraeli, to make the people around you feel clever. And so how do you go about getting better at this skill of seeing others? Well, the first thing you do is you study the humanities and you read books. There's a quote from General Jim Mattis, I like that. He said, if you don't read a lot, you're functionally illiterate because your own life experience is not enough to help you understand the world. You need books and other people's life experiences to understand the world. And so to me, the humanities are the place you go to learn about people. And if you can't understand other people, then you'll be miserable and you'll make people around you miserable. And unfortunately, enrollment in the humanities is plummeting. I've been teaching at Yale for off and on, or to teach at Yale for off and on for about 20 years. And just once in my life, I want to have one of my students come up to me and say, you know, I really wanted to major in accounting, but my parents forced me to major in French poetry. Uh, and that will never happen because parents are anxious. They're pushing their kids in this pre-professional track. The school and the world pushes them in a pre-professional track. And they don't know about people. And they, they don't know about other people. 
And so the book is really an attempt to walk people through the process of getting to know a person. And so I'm just going to walk through a few stages in that process. And the first stage is just meeting someone. When you first meet someone, you look at them. And that first few seconds is such an important thing. Because when you meet somebody, everybody's asking, does this person care about me? Can I trust this person? Am I a priority to this person? And those, the answer to those questions will be answered in your eyes before a word comes out of your mouth. And so I tell this story, a story I love that happens to have taken place in Waco, Texas, not too far from here, by Texas standards. Um, and it's, I'm sitting at a diner named, with a woman named LaRue Dorsey, who's a 93-year-old lady, and um, she uh, is a stern disciplinarian. She was a teacher all her career. And I, uh, I'm talking to her, and she's tough. She's like a drill sergeant, and I'm a little intimidated by her. And into the diner walks a mutual friend named Jimmy Durrell. And Jimmy's a pastor, and he pastors the homeless. He has a church called Church Under the Bridge, which meets under a highway overpass where the homeless live. Uh, and he comes up to us, he sees us, and he comes to our table, and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders, and he shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. <laughs> and he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that stern disciplinarian I'd been talking to turns into this bright nine-year-old girl, just ebullient. And so it's the power of attention. He called forth a different version of her just by that first encounter. And partly, he's just a warmer personality than I am. <laughs> but partly, he's a pastor. And so when he meets somebody, he's meeting somebody who was made in the image of God. He's looking into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity, somebody so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. And so you could be Christian or Jewish or Muslim or, or atheist or agnostic, but greeting each person you meet with that level of respect and reverence is the first step in getting to know someone. Uh, that if people are not objects or problems to be solved, they're mysteries you're never going to get to the bottom of. And so that's just a curiosity and a level of respect. The second phase in getting to know someone is hanging out. And so most of our life, when we're just going about our business, we're not having deep conversations with each other. We're just going about our business. Uh, and so when you're hanging out, there are ways of hanging out which are instrumental, and then ways of hanging out that are relational. And so I'm a, my problem and my perpetual problem in life is that I have a clock in my head and I want to be time efficient. Uh, and so uh, I say if, if I'm going to the gas station to pump gas, then I think to myself, I've got 90 seconds, I can get two emails done. And if you go through, if you're dropping off your kids at school or meeting people at a grocery store with that efficiency mentality, you are just not going to connect with them because it's all like, how do I get out of here? And so it's taking that time efficiency model out of your head. And so I have a couple and I know in DC who say we like our friends to be lingerable. They come to dinner and they just linger and they're good company, they linger. And so that's one part of accompaniment. The second part of accompaniment is playing. And when people play, uh, they're just naturally themselves. They're not thinking about who they are, they're just natural. And you really get to know who we are. And I literally walked in here and we were having a conversation by the bar and we were talking about, I, he wrote it up, 
that you can really tell a lot about a person by how they play basketball. And, or tennis, or whatever, or God forbid, pickleball. Not that I endorse pickleball. Um, and because they're naturally themselves. And there's high-fiving, and there's trash talk, and some people are selfish, and some people are furious when they miss a lot of shots. Some people are gracious. I was saying that my, one of the most generous people I've ever known was the best basketball passer I've ever known. He just, and his, his inner nature came out in his game. Uh, and so, uh, play is, if you want to get to know somebody, play something. And it can be sports, but it can be Uno or poker or whatever you want to play. But you learn a lot about people by just playing. And that's part of accompaniment. The final part about accompaniment is the art of presence. It's just showing up for people. And so I have a friend who lost one daughter uh, in a horseback riding accident in Afghanistan and then nearly lost another daughter in um, a bike accident in D.C. And I, I came over to be with her while she was nursing her daughter. And she said, you know what was the, um, the best uh, moment I've had since I was nursing my daughter, Catherine? Somebody came to see us, and they went to the bathroom, and they noticed there was no bath mat in the bathroom. So they went out to Target, they bought a bath mat, and they put it in there without even just telling us. They just put it in there. It was that practical act of doing something small and practical that felt so good. They, that person really just saw us. And she said, and I, I said, I don't know, can I talk about your, the other daughter who died, Anna? And she said, you should know, people think they shouldn't talk about Anna because they're going to remind me of a bad subject. But they should know Anna is always on my mind. So mention her. And if I feel like talking about her, I will. If I don't, I won't. But mention her, and that gives me the chance if I want to. And so that's like just practicing the art of presence. And one of my students gave me a story I'm about to tell you about the art of presence. And it was a student of mine named Jillian Sawyer. And when she was in college, her dad died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, and uh, as she was dying, they talked about the fact he wouldn't get to see some of the big life events for her, like the wedding. And so after college, she was invited to be a bridesmaid at a friend's wedding. Uh, and she watches the dad give this beautiful toast to his daughter. And she's moved, and of course, she's sad. And then it comes time for the father-daughter dance. And she thinks to herself, just a little too much. I'm going to go to the ladies' room. I'm just going to have a cry. And she goes to the ladies' room, and when she comes out a few minutes later, she finds that everybody at her table and at the neighboring table has come to the hallway, and they're just standing there. And she describes in a paper, which she's given me permission to quote from, what happened. What I will always remember uh, forever is that no one said a word. Each person, including the newer boyfriends, who I knew less well, gave me a reaffirming hug and headed back to their table. No one lingered or awkwardly tried to validate my grief. They were there for me just for a moment. It was exactly what I needed. And that's just a beautiful art of showing up for somebody. It meant that somebody at her table had the presence of mind to think, Jillian needs us right now. Let's go in the hallway. And that is Illuminator. Uh, and so the, the third stage of getting to know someone is conversation. And conversation, uh, because I can't imagine what's in your head. Uh, what's going on in your head is way different than what 
is going on in my head. We're all in the same room. We're not all having the same experience. Because there's a, a phrase from Aldous Huxley, experience is not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. We all see the world based on our own life. We, you don't see with your eyes, you see with your whole life. Because we all have models in our head that help us interpret things. An insecure person walks to a party very differently than an extroverted person. An interior designer sees a different room than a security specialist. We just see reality very differently. And so you have to be really good at conversation. And so how good are you at conversation? Well, it's very easy to be mediocre at conversation. And it's very easy, surprisingly, to be really bad at conversation. Uh, I often go to, and this may be Washington's specialty, Washington is the place, not where the naughty kids went who threw the cat in the dryer. Washington is the place where the kids who tattled on the naughty kids who threw the cat in the dryer. And so we're the most emotionally avoidant spot in the face of the earth. And I was telling somebody earlier tonight, a group earlier today, that um, I, had a, I was on the phone with a White House source of mine, and we're having a conversation, and he starts talking, and the call drops. And I think he'll call me back in like two minutes when he notices. And so two minutes pass, three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. Finally, 10 minutes later, I call his office and talk to his assistant. And she says, oh, he's busy. On, he's on the phone. And I say, no, he's on the phone with me. He does not know because he's bloviating for 10 minutes. <laughs> and so how do you become a better conversationalist? Well, first, a conversation, a good conversation is not a bunch of people making statements at each other. That's a bad conversation. A good conversation is a joint exploration. Somebody throws out the spark of an idea, and then you develop it, and that person develops it, and you have a joint process. A good conversation starts here and ends here, because you're exploring together. And so how do you become better at that? Well, I, I have, in the book, I have a few tips that I learned from experts, and one of them is treat attention as an on-off switch, not a dimmer. If you're with somebody, your commitment to them, your attention should be them 100% or 0%, not 60%. Be a loud listener. I have a friend named Andy Crouch. When you talk to him, it's like talking to a Pentecostal church. He's like, yes, yes, amen, amen. Preach that, preach that. And I just love talking to that guy. There's so much affirmation. It's like, it's crazy. Make them authors, not witnesses. When people tell you stories, they don't go into enough detail. And so if you say, well, where was your boss sitting when she said that? Then suddenly they're narrating a scene. And you want them to be narrating. You want them to be telling you stories. And so even as a political journalist, I don't ask people, what do you think about this? I ask, how did you come to believe this? And that way they're telling me a story of a person or an experience that shaped their views. And I've been lobbying my colleagues at Meet the Press and other TV talk shows. If you watch these Sunday shows, the politicians come in, we ask them a bunch of gotcha questions, they give us a bunch of canned answers. Imagine if the show was just like, who are you and why'd you get into this? And that would be just more, make a better show, would have higher ratings and be better for politics. But we're stuck in non-narrative mode. Another one uh, is, Find the disagreement under the disagreement. If we're arguing about the Middle East, what, what philosophical or personal experience causes us to have different views on this issue? And so suddenly you're not just fighting with each other, you're exploring where your views came from. And you actually get a deeper understanding of yourself and each other. And then finally, the quality of your conversations depends on the quality of your questions. 
So it's just super important to be a great question asker. Now, if you go back to your own life, uh, your kids, as kids, were good question askers. And so I know a woman in New York named Naomi Way, uh, and she uh, uh, teaches kids how to be journalists, how to ask questions. And so the first day she was in class teaching this, she told the class, ask me any question you want, and I'll give you an honest answer. And so the first question from one of the kids was, are you married? She says, no. Second question, are you divorced? Yes. Third question, do you still love him? She's like, whoa, oh. <laughs> and she, her eyes fill with tears. Next question, does he know you still love him? Next question, do your kids know you still, he still love him? And so they went, boom, right at it. And so um, when you ask a good question, you want it to be as open as possible. So like the worst thing you can do is somebody says, mentions their mother, you, the worst thing to do is say, well, were you close to your mother? Because then you're reducing the answer to close or not close. But instead say, just tell me about your mother. And that's a completely open question. And so there was a focus group described in a book I read called You're Not Listening by Kate Murphy. And a woman had been hired, a focus group moderator had been hired to discover why people go to, go to the grocery store late at night. The grocery stores want to know what, what it is about late night shoppers. And so she could have asked, why'd you go to the grocery store late at night? And she had, instead she asked an open question. Tell me about the last time you went to the grocery store after 11 p.m. And there was a woman in the group who hadn't said anything, the whole focus group. And she says, well, I'd smoked a joint and I wanted menage a trois with me, Ben and Jerry. And that's a, just a good answer. Like, so you get a little hint into her life you wouldn't have gotten by asking an opinion. And so the best, que the best questions when you first get to know somebody are silly questions. Like one of my favorite questions is, tell me about your favorite unimportant thing about you. And from that question, asking a friend of mine who's in the academy, that I learned that a very serious philosopher spends a lot of his time watching extremely trashy reality TV. <laughs> so what's your favorite unimportant thing about you? Once you get to know somebody, you can ask people questions that are 30,000 feet questions, that really take you above daily rigors of life, and you see yourself from a new perspective. So these are questions like, what crossroads are you at? We're usually at some life transition. And so it's like, what transition are you in the middle of right now? Or uh, if the next five years is a chapter in your life, what's that chapter about? Uh, or uh, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Fear plays a role in our lives. And I had a friend who was at the end of a job interview, and uh, he, he asked the interviewer a question, which was, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And she started crying because she wouldn't be doing HR at that company if she wasn't afraid. And I asked my students at Yale, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And every year, two or three say, I wouldn't be at Yale. It's not the right school for me, but I need the prestige. And so they're driven by fear of losing status. Uh, there's a guy named Peter Block uh, who asks great questions, though you really have to know people to ask these questions. What is the refusal or no you keep postponing? What do you want to say no to, but you're too afraid to say? What is the commitment you've made you no longer believe in? What's the gift you currently hold in exile? In other words, what talent do you have that you're not using? I was at a dinner party uh, a couple months ago, and I asked a question of the group that my wife found incredibly pretentious. 
But the question was, how do your ancestors show up in your life? Like, we're all formed by our ethnic heritage. So this is like, how are you formed by your ethnic heritage? And we had a Dutch family, at the, and they talked about what it's like to be from Dutch heritage. We had a black family, they talked about African-American heritage. I talked about Jewish heritage and how I've been formed by 5,000 years of Jewish history. And it was a fantastic conversation. And so being really good at that and having memorable conversations as opposed to the ones you're going to forget is just a great skill. And then the next stage of getting to know someone is dealing with people in hard times. And so in the book, I tell the story about my friend uh, who was my oldest friend in the life, uh, who we met when we were 11 and played a zillion hours of basketball together. Uh, and he had a great life but suffered from depression at age 57. Uh, and uh, so he was really hammered by it starting in 2019. And so I didn't know about depression. And if, you want, if, you don't, if you're dealing with somebody in depression and you don't know much about it, I highly recommend a book by William Styron called Darkness Visible. It's, it's, he really brings you to what it feels like to be depressed. And as a friend of mine said, uh, Mike Gerson, who was a Bush Beach writer and a Washington Post columnist, depression is a malfunction in the instrument you use to perceive reality. So they're just not perceiving reality accurately. In my friend's case, he had voices in his head that said, um, you're worthless, nobody would miss you if you were gone. And so I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I made mistakes, which I think are the classic mistakes that people who don't have possess the right social skills. And the first mistake I made was I, um, I tried to give them ideas on how to get out of depression. Like, you should go off, you used to do these service trips, go off back to Vietnam that you found them so rewarding. <clears throat> but depressed person ideas are not what they're missing. They're missing energy and a lot else. So if you tell a person, here's how you can get out, you're just showing you just don't get it. The second mistake I made was to try to remind him of all the good things in his life. And that also made it worse because he, uh, I was just reminding him that he wasn't enjoying the things that are actually enjoyable. And so I learned gradually over the three years that he had it that the first thing you can do is just acknowledge the reality of the situation. This is terrible. This sucks. The second thing you can do is you can just say, I want more for you. I want more for you. And you're, it's not going to help, but he'll at least know your intentions toward him. And the third thing you can do is constant touch points. A text, a text, a postcard, an email. No response necessary. I'm just thinking about you. And again, it's not going to solve anything, but he'll feel like there's somebody else in this world. You won't feel so isolated. Uh, and the final thing you can say, and this I learned from Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, was um, what Frankl would say to people contemplating suicide, which was, life has not stopped expecting things of you. And the fact that you're suffering gives you credibility as you talk to other people who are suffering. There's a great quote from Thornton Wilder. <clears throat> Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble in the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of the earth as can one human being broken on the wheel of living. In love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And so the people who've been through stuff have acquired a wisdom that they can use to, to relate to the people who are also suffering. Uh, and so Pete ended up losing his life to depression. Uh, and I don't think anything I could have said 
would have mat mattered in the final thing, but I could have done better just being present. And that's a skill, it's just a skill. Then the final and final stage I'll talk about tonight is how to have hard conversations across ideological difference and across ethnic difference, across political difference. And I wrote six zillion columns in 2015 saying, don't worry, Donald Trump will never get the Republican nomination for president. <laughs> and at the time I was living in New York, or living in DC, my social life was in New York, and I was teaching at Yale University. So how could I be out of touch with America? Um, <laughs> I was very in touch with the silent car of the Acela, if you know that car. And so, but sometimes you just come across somebody who just is very different. And my first tactic when I come across somebody who's very different is storytelling. It's like, again, how'd you come to believe this? And so I ran into a guy in South Dakota years and years ago, maybe 2017, 2018. Um, and I just said, tell me a story of your life. And that is so powerful. I have a, a guy I met while researching the book named Dan McAdams, who researches the how people tell their life stories. And the way he does is he calls people into the office and he asks them to tell their life story. And he tells them, tell me your high points, tell me your low points, tell me your turning points. And they go for four hours. And half the people cry. And then at the end, he gives them a check to compensate them for their time, a research fee. And a lot of the people just push the check back to him and say, I'm not taking money for this. This has been one of the best afternoons of my life. No one has ever asked me my story before. And a lot of people have just never had the chance. So I'm in South Dakota, and I, I'm with a guy who's clearly way more supportive of Trump than I am. And I said, well, tell me about your life. And he said, well, let me just tell you about the best day of my life. And so he was a foreman at a plant that made the casings around refrigeration units that go on the top of buildings. Uh, and he said, I was foreman of this section of the plant, and they changed the technology, and I was no longer qualified to supervise because I didn't know the new technology. And so they laid me off. And I was just going to go quietly, and I um, packed up my stuff in my office, put them in a box, and I was opened the office door, and 3,600 people, the entire staff of the plant, formed a double line from his office in the plant, through the plant, out the parking lot to his car door. And he walked out between these two rows of people as they applauded him all the way. And he said, that was my best day. And he said, every day since has been worse. I've had worse jobs, more solitude, um, more stuckness. And I'm now 70, and my life has been straight downhill. And so he said, that Trump guy may be a jackass, but I need to change. And so suddenly I may not agree with him, but I get where he's coming from. And so that's tell me a story. And when you tell a story, you find that nobody fits the stereotypes you think. And so I encountered another woman, if I can remember this correctly, she uh, was a big Trump supporter, and she was a, also a lesbian biker who, conver who converted to Sufi Islam after surviving a plane crash. It's like, what stereotype are you fitting into? <laughs> and so you learn the most amazing things. Uh, and so just conversation like that. And then when they really come at you, your first job is to stand in their standpoint. It's to ask them three or four times, tell me more about your situation. Tell me more about your position. And you may not convert them, 
but you'll find if you ask the same sort of question, tell me more, tell me more, what am I missing? Their fifth answer will be get to the real truth. And if, if, even if you don't agree, with all that curiosity, you will be communicating respect. And there's a great book I recommend called Crucial Conversations about how to ha have hard conversations. And the authors in that book say, in any conversation, respect is like air. When it's absent, it's all anybody can think about. And so you just communicate respect. There's always, every conversation, there's two levels. There's this top-level conversation of what we're allegedly talking about. And then there's the under-conversation, which is the emotional flow that's going between us. Am I making you feel safe and respected, or am I making you feel threatened and disrespected? So you got to pay attention to that under-conversation. So I pay a lot of attention, and I ask people, I've asked people for the last four years, tell me about a time somebody really saw you. And some of the answers are extremely prosaic. I had a woman in early COVID. I asked her, and she said, well, I, I run a homeless shelter. And in early COVID, she was overwhelmed with work. She came home weeping. And her husband just sat next to her and said, here are the six household tasks I'm going to do while you're slammed at work. And she said, my husband really made me felt seen at that moment, because he knew exactly what I needed. I had a guy whose daughter was struggling in second grade. Uh, and the teacher said to her one day, you know, you're really good at thinking before you speak. Uh, and she, uh, um, it turned the whole year, girl's year around because uh, she, what was her flaw was suddenly seen by her teacher as a great skill, thinking before you're speaking. And when I asked people, tell me about a time you felt seen, the number one category of people who see them are teachers. Teach, good teachers see the potential in people. I remember in 11th grade, my teacher, Mrs. Dusnap, uh, looked at me, I, I said some smart ass thing in class, and she said, David, you're trying to get by on glibness, stop it. And on the one hand, it was in front of the whole class, I was kind of humiliated. On the other hand, I felt, wow, she really knows me. Wow, it's pretty good, I felt so honored. And then there are some moments when, that are just more profound. And so I'll close with a story from a book called Lost and Found, which was written by a woman named Catherine Schultz. Uh, and so Catherine Schultz had a dad named Isaac. And he was apparently this wonderfully warm, gregarious guy who was a great dad. And near the end of his life, um, he, uh, he lost his voice. He just stopped talking. And nobody could figure out. The doctors couldn't figure out why. And so they sat around with him. Uh, and they just came closer around those final days. She said, I was amazed that we could go so much closer around his waning flame. And then in the final night, they got together, and he was still mute. And they, they all went around the room, and they said the things they didn't want to leave unsaid. Uh, and so Schultz describes what happened. I had always regarded my family as close. So it was startling to realize how much closer we could get my father, mute, but seemingly alert, looked from one face to the other as we spoke, his brown eyes shining with tears. I had always hated to see him cry, and seldom did. But for once, I was grateful. It gave me hope that for what may have been the last time in his life, and perhaps the most important, he understood. If nothing else, 
I knew that everywhere he looked that evening, he found himself where he had always been with his family, the center of the circle, the source and subject of our abiding love. And so that was a guy who died well seen. So we're living in a time when our democracy is under threat because of bitterness, because of hostility, because of world events. And it may seem naive and woo-woo to talk about seeing others, but in my view, it's the most effective way to heal what ails our politics and our democracy. That it's not naive and woo-woo to lead with respect. It's not naive and woo-woo to lead with curiosity. And that if you want, uh, be, living in a democracy is about a lot more than just voting. It's about human encounter. It's about conversation, it's about argument, it's about compromise. It's about disagreeing well. And so this book is an attempt to give us a few of the skills that'll help us be better human beings and better citizens. So thank you very much. So I think we have time for questions, and all I ask is that you make your questions long and rambling with no question at the end. For those with questions, please raise your hand. I'll come to you. Come on. Mr. Brooks, I just wanted to tell you I'm a big fan. Um, my favorite program is your um, conversation with Jonathan Capehart on uh, Friday afternoon in your questions and your answers and how you both answer it. I mean, it's, it's, I, I really love that, that show. Um, I wanted to ask you, you said you, Oprah said to you that you've grown so much emotionally. As you were growing emotionally, did other things change in your life, particularly maybe your political thoughts? Oh, interesting question. Um, well, the, Biggest thing is I came to faith, so that's kind of important. Um, I think I was just more open to, uh, the way, way I describe my coming to the faith is um, that I, I started having sensations that there was just more than the material world. And I think I was more porous, is the way I put it. And if you've ever been to the Penn Station in New York, you, you've been to the ugliest spot on the face of the earth, or the second ugliest spot. And there's an even uglier spot, which is the subway station next to Penn Station. And I was there one day, and I looked at all the people in the, the station, uh, and I said, well, I think they have souls. Like there's some piece of them that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but gives them infinite value and dignity. And their souls are either soaring or suffering or stagnant, or, but they have souls. And for me, it was a very gradual process of knowing um, from if they're souls, if there's some part of us that's not, that's spiritual and not material, then there's probably a creator that's not spirit, that's not material, but is spiritual. Um, and that's when Jesus walked through the wall and told me to follow him. No, I'm kidding. That did not happen. <laughs> so I went through this long process, uh, and I, I learned, um, I learned that if you're a religious seeker, people give you books. <laughs> And so I was given probably about 700 books in the course of about four months, only 350 which were different copies of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um, and so I think that, that's one thing. I just became more open to other realms than just you know, the hard physical world. I think politically, I probably, I mean, I have, I've had different phases in my life. 
and Talmadge has heard the story, but I grew up in a very lefty home in Greenwich Village. And when I was five, my parents were sort of, they weren't really hippies, but they were protesting the war in Vietnam. And they took me to a bee-in. Uh, and a bee-in was where hippies who would go just to be. And one of the things they did was they set a garbage can on fire and threw their wallets into it to demonstrate how little they cared about money and material things. And I was five, and I saw a $5 bill on fire in the garbage can. So I broke from the crowd, reached into the fire, grabbed the money, and ran away, which was my first step over to the right. Uh, and so then I, then I worked for William F. Buckley in my 20s, and I became pretty conservative Wall Street Journal editorial page. I was pretty conservative. Uh, and then I guess gradually, really since Newt Gingrich, I've been on a gradual march leftward. Um, and so I, I don't know whether being open, hopefully, I guess it's put me in touch with a greater variety of people. And so, uh, you know, I, I in for four or five years, starting in about 2014, I was part of a community. Uh, we were sort of a chosen family, a group of about 40 or 50 DC kids who really didn't have much of their own family. And so there were about eight of us adults and about 40 or 50 kids. We call them kids, they were teenagers. And we met several times a week. We vacationed together. We did holidays together. Uh, and they were nothing like me. Middle class Jewish kid from New York. They were mostly very poor black kids from DC. And uh, the first time I went in somebody, into the house where we all met, I um, reached out to shake a kid's hand, introduce myself. And the kid said to me, his name was Ed. He said, we're not allowed to shake hands here. We just hug here. And I'm not the huggiest guy in the face of the earth, but they made me huggier. And I think being around those kids, and then I started a nonprofit called Weave, which was about community builders, it put me in intimate contact with people with very different lives than my own. And it probably was an education in American society. And it probably made me a little more woke, if you want to say that. Uh, I have a pastor friend who uh, is a Baptist, Southern Baptist, and he starts sprinkling his church is being taken over by Christian nationalism. And he, he starts sprinkling his sermons with sentences from the Sermon on the Mount, but he doesn't tell the congregation where the sentences came from. And so he'll have congregants who say, I really liked your sermon today, except for this or that sentence. That was too woke for me. He's saying, no, well, that's actually Jesus. Jesus said that. Uh, and so I've, I've probably moved over to the left a little on certain things. Uh, and I, I haven't thought about if it's related to the inner transformation, but it probably is. I hadn't thought about that. Sure. We, we got one coming. Mr. Brooks, thank you. Um, you wrote a column fairly recently in the New York Times, something along the lines of maybe we're the problem. Yeah. Does that sound, tell us how this book maybe informed you on that column. Oh, interesting. Um, so that column, that column is based on the idea that, um, you know, why is populism a global phenomenon? And the progressive story that people like to tell is that we're in a society of rapid change, and there are some people who can't handle it. They can't handle diversity. They can't handle the other. They feel left behind. Uh, and that's a story that has some validity. But another story you could tell is that over the last um, 40 or 50 years, there's a class of people 
who I wrote a book about called Bobos in Paradise, who are upper middle class, highly educated people. And those people go to very selective schools. They marry each other. They invest enormous amounts of money in their kids. So the average family, college educated family, invests $5,000 per kid per year just in extracurricular activities. And over the course of a childhood, there's a Yale economist who calculated that the average upper middle class family invests $10 million per kid, including in-kind like vacations, visits to museums. And so their kids inherit all these advantages. They also get to go to selective schools. They also marry each other. They then move to a few select cities like Dallas-Fort Worth or Denver or Washington or LA or San Francisco. And they've rigged the meritocracy so it's handed down from one generation to another. And this is a group of people who talk loudly about how much they care about the poor, but somehow they rig the game so it always benefits themselves. And the other 80% of the country looks at those people and sees, well, they control the media, they control the arts, they control the universities, they increasingly control government, and those people just have too much power. And plus, I hate them. <laughs> And they look down on me. And so screw them, I'm gonna vote for Donald Trump. And that's, I think that's a phenomenon of the information age. And it's why there's a Donald Trump in every country, every Western country has a populist movement. Whether it's Viktor Orban or Jean-Marie Le Pen or the Brexit movement, I think it's largely, mostly, a revolt against people who have a lot of education and privilege in our society and have not shared it. And who tend not to do military service uh, and who tend not to, like, and so a lot of those people look at the media and they don't see themselves represented. Uh, and so that, that column was based on the idea that they're legitimate, there's a legitimate cause. And the thing that sets me off the most is the members of my class who A, can't face that story, and B, are com completely unwilling to even try to look at the other 80% of the country. And so the thing that infuriates me most is the, the people who say they live in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is super woke story area of Brooklyn, and they think, well, the people who disagree with me, they're all just a bunch of racists. Well, if you want to not persuade anybody, just call them racists. And so uh, I just find the insufferable insularity of some of the folks that are in my social class completely infuriating. And so the Atlantic did a big study what are the most ideologically and socially, in, what's the most insular part of society where people only hang out with people like themselves? And they measured this by all sorts of means. And they found that the most insular county in America is Boston, Massachusetts. And of course, Harvard, MIT, like a great college town, but they don't know people outside. And so that column was based on the idea that part of the problem is us, and this book is based on the idea, is no, we actually do need to see those people. Um, so that's, sure. I could take one more question. So much of our politics now is, is scorched earth. What is it about the state of our democracy today that offers you some glimmer of hope <laughs> and optimism? Um, uh, <laughs> no, I, this has been a bad month, and uh, you know, uh, since October 7th, 
Uh, I, I, when the Iraq war started, I thought, well, we're going to try to democratize the Middle East, but maybe we'll end up Middle Easternizing our democracy. And so conspiracy theories, the conflict, tribalism. Uh, and so it's just been, frankly, a horrific period. Like, even scrolling through Twitter today, like, there was a showing, how, how much time we're talking about this. In LA, there's a thing called the Museum of Tolerance. And they showed a movie of some of the October 7 video clips. And so a gang of pro-Hamas lunatics attacked the people who were leaving the movie theater, and there was basically a melee and a riot of clubs flying and people beating each other up on the doorstep of the Museum of Tolerance. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that's despairing. I guess if I, I wanted to point to optimism, you've got to take the long-term view. But I've been helped in the last few years by a book that was written by a great political scientist named Samuel Huntington uh, called The Politics of Disharmony. And he wrote this book in 1983. And in the book, he says, you know, I don't really believe in cycles of history, but if I look over American history, every 60 years, we tend to go through what he calls a moral convulsion. People get disgusted with established power. Outsider groups demand to be included. A new highly moral generation comes on the scene. There's a new communications technology. And he said this happened in the 1770s with the revolutionary period. It happened in the 1830s with the Jacksonian populist period. It happened in the 1890s with the Industrial Revolution, all that turmoil. It happened in the 1960s. And so writing in 1983, he says, well, I don't know if I believe in 60-year cycles, but if the pattern holds sometime around 2020, we're gonna have another moral convulsion. I was like, well, pretty good, pretty good. <laughs> and the good news about a moral convulsion is you come out of it. That basically you have a paradigm, a way of looking at the world, and it, it begins to get outdated. And at a certain point, people just begin to ch chop it to bits. And the 60s chopped to bits the culture of the 50s. Uh, and I think what's happened since 2013 has chopped to bits the culture of the 1990s. And in some sense, you have to chop to bits. And those periods of chopping to bits can seem horrible. 1968, I was only seven, but it must have seemed horrible. There were, in 1972, there were 4,000 bombings per year on American college campuses. And, you know, 68, all these assassinations, riots, cities burning. And yet, by 1974 or 75, you go to a college campus, and all the kids are into Crystal and Est and, like, New Age stuff. It's hard to stay angry long, and plus society shifts. And so the cause for optimism is we go through these periods of convulsion in when we have to get rid of the old culture, and we have to modernize it. And culture is a collective response to the problem of the moment. And so in my view, we're shifting over, and hopefully we're shifting over to a better culture. And it's a period of intense cultural change, and it feels bad when you're living through it. And there are excesses and all this stuff. But my hope is that in five years, or even three years, we'll be in a different spot. And we'll just get exhausted by bitterness fighting. And we'll want some sort of stability, and we'll, want to, we'll have a new paradigm. And so, I think that's my hope for the country. That's my first hope. The second hope, I'll, I'll just quickly, I think our economy is doing quite good. We're at 4.9% annual growth, pretty low in play, uh, unemployment, historically high labor participation. Inequality, which we're widening for so many decades, is now coming down because wages at the bottom are going up. 
uh, and inflation is down to 3.7. And so America has all sorts of problems, but since the middle of the 17th century, we always had one thing on our side, tremendous dynamism. We're just an energetic place. And so that means we have the energy to fix our problems. And so I'm hoping that energy, and I firmly believe that energy is still around, and we're still capable of producing Tesla, we're still capable of AI, we're still capable of all this innovation. And hopefully we'll have a little social and political innovation along the way. So thank you all. Now, Colin. Did I steal your papers? Where's the gift? There's supposed to be a gift up here that I was supposed to if give. If I don't get a gift, I'm going to be mad. <laughs> oh, this is it. Oh, beautiful. Okay. David, on behalf, here you are. We spent the whole day. Look at that. Uh, hook em horns. Uh, hook em horns. Texas right Longhorn. We're trying to make him even more Texan with each passing year. But yeah. I'm going to wear this all over Oklahoma. <laughs> but, I, you know, here we are. Coming up on mid-November, and David, thank you for your wisdom bringing it to North Texas. And you all are thinking about, what can I give my family and friends for Christmas? I can't think of a better gift to bring in the new year with a new spirit and new attitude that we all desperately need across our society than this wonderful book. So I hope you'll get it. I hope you'll read it. I hope you'll buy copies. And, and we can, everybody in this room can be part of the solution uh, to deal with all the, the problems we have. But it took four years of hard work for David to be able to put all these thoughts together and synthesize them and, and paint the picture that he's painted tonight for us. So uh, spread the word. These are words we all need to hear. Thanks a lot.